Hi, this is Chris Moore, and we have a special Channel 3900 podcast for you today. This is a um, special event that was held at Bethel that we thought some of our listeners might enjoy hearing. Uh, Brianna, could you tell us a little bit about what this event is that you helped us put on? Yeah, this was a Model UN-sponsored event. Um, it was a student and mostly faculty Q&A. Um, so we had uh, you and Chris Gertz and uh, Matt Kukum and Tom Albinson speak with us. Um, Tom Albinson is the president and founder of the International Association for Refugees. Um, so, yeah, we were just really excited to... Um, present the Ukrainian crisis in a really approachable way. And so I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Hello. Um, thank you for being here. Um, and thanks to our panelists for being here. We're going to talk about Ukraine now. And um, so I'd like to start by asking all of our panelists to introduce themselves and um, like what you what you know about in relation to Ukraine. Should I kick it off since I'm on one of the ends here? Okay, all right. So uh, my name is Matt Kukum. I'm a professor here at Bethel University. Um, my specialties um, are not in European politics or international relations or anything all that relevant. Um, but I do teach American politics and political philosophy, and I think probably the, the main reason I got roped into this um, is, um, I mean, it is a privilege to be with you, you fine gentlemen, but, um, and thank you, Brianna, for the invitation. Um, but so my connection... Um, um, sort of to recent events, um, I've been involved in a project along with a professor at Calvin University to basically teach um, some American politics, American constitutional history, um, sort of certificate courses um, in conjunction with Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. Um, we had started a webinar program literally the day before the attack um, that Wednesday. And then Thursday is when the bombing began in earnest. Um, in Kiev and elsewhere. Um, and we were planning on going there this summer. Obviously, um, that was postponed. Um, we do hope to resume um, our certificate program, um, so webinar program in the fall. Um, we'll have to see what happens. Um, so it's been interesting to sort of keep in touch with some people in, in Ukraine um, and just hear their, their perspective about um, everything that has transpired. I'm Chris Garretts. I have the least justification to be here. I'm, uh, no. I'm a historian and I teach European history, but I, I really do like Western European history, not that much in the East. Um, but this fall, I am teaching a class in the Cold War, which maybe a couple of you are taking. And uh, it feels all of a sudden very timely and pertinent. And uh, I also teach a class on World War II, which I think also is pretty pertinent to our situations. Maybe I'll talk more about that. But I, I guess I'm here to bring a little bit of a European historian's perspective. And I'm the uh, the shorter of the Chris's. Um, I'm Chris Moore. Well, s seated, right? Um, uh, let's keep torsos out of this. All right. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm Chris Moore. I'm a political scientist like Dr. Kukum, and I teach international politics. And so uh, everything to do with international conflict is kind of my bailiwick. And um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for, for now. I'm Tom Elbinson, and I am not a professor. Uh, I ha have been working full-time with refugees since 1980. I lived in Austria from uh, 1980 to 2003, then moved here and continue to work uh, internationally. And so I, I am the founder and president of an organization called International Association for Refugees. We work in Europe, uh, East Africa, and here in the US with asylum seekers and resettled refugees. So among other things that we're doing, we do have a Ukrainian response, and I was in Ukraine in March. Thank you so much. Okay. I feel like this is a quiz show. Should we have buzzers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, these questions might be geared more towards some of you than others. Okay. Feel free to jump in on anything. Um, let's, let's do it. Um, so my first question is, how can the history of these countries help us understand the causes of the present war? 
it's kind of sound like his story. How about, how about you start and tag me in when you're ready? Yeah. Um, how does the history explain the war? I mean, I think partly what I think John alluded to well is um, they have a shared history. Right? This is not a new conflict. They're not new tensions here. In fact, part of what I should talk about are like the echoes of older tensions and older conflicts and precedents. But if you do want to go deeper... Um, there's a state called Kievan Rus around the year 1000 AD in the Middle Ages. Uh, this is, in some way, the origin story of Russia, Belarus, of Ukraine, right? And, like, one thing that struck me listening to that is, like, um, we'll talk about the sovereignty of nation states, but national identity is fuzzy. And I think Americans have this notion of very clean, distinct European nations matching up to borders on there, but it's it's not true. Like, you saw the linguistic map of Ukraine, it's 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 complicated, right? Uh, and there's been intermarriage, and most Ukrainians speak multiple languages at this point, and they do share a history, and they share religion. Right? We don't know how much we want to talk about that, but that's that's another piece that John didn't quite get to in the explainer. Mostly what I've thought about, though, is the Cold War, but also World War II. Um, so coming up next week is a major holiday in Russia called Victory Day on May 9th. So uh, Americans and Western Europeans celebrate the end of World War II on VE Day, which was May 8th. Uh, and then the Soviets, who suffered the greatest losses, over 20 million dead, have Victory Day the day after. And it's always been an important patriotic holiday. It remembers this great national sacrifice. You get parades, missiles going through Moscow, uh, and sometimes speeches. It's been a big thing for Putin, historically. So there's been a lot of speculation last week looking ahead to that. How will that event be used? Um, for example, Ukrainian intelligence has claimed that the Russians are already preparing essentially to conquer Mariupol in time to do some sort of event for Victory Day. And that could either become then sort of the declaration of victory, we're done, we've got what we wanted, we've got our land bridge that Chris will probably talk about. Uh, it could be an expansion of the war at that point. But it's a reminder that one of the really poignant and painful connections in their history is World War II. Um, I was going to bring it, but I think I lent it to a student. I would highly recommend the book Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder. Um, so Bloodlands is a story of the part of Eurasia or Europe that stretches from the Baltic republics through Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine. And between 1932, the start of the, the, the forced famine, the terror famine, the Holodomor, and then the end of World War II, 14 million people died in that region between Hitler and Stalin. And what Snyder tries to argue is this is all part of one essential continuous blood-soaked um, geography. And Ukraine is the pivotal part of it. It's where most of the dying took place, starting with the famine, but it's also a key center for the Holocaust. It's a place where the Russia, the Germans intentionally tried to starve people to death. Uh, and then it's where you get reprisals at the end of the war. And um, it's not an accident that Putin claims this is about denazifying, right? Which sounds to us ridiculous, right? Volodymyr Zelensky is a Jew, right? And this is a democratic, I mean, not perfect, but it's a democratic state. What does this have to do with denazification? There are all these allusions to the great patriotic war in Russian history. And for Ukrainians, then, it's hard not to view this as, as an existential threat to their very existence. They've been through having Russian dictators and then foreign invaders come in and exterminate them. And um, I think it's hard for us to understand that from the outside. Like, it's already terrifying and, and deeply saddening. But when you do have someone who doesn't recognize your existence as a nation with significant modern military strength and this kind of like historic echoes of the Holodomor and of World War II, um, it's it's terrifying. It just makes the Ukrainian resistance all the more remarkable, right? But I, I've thought a lot about World War II and that kind of bloodland era as I've thought about what the history is here. I'll just try and add briefly. Uh, Chris did a nice job walking us through um, from the tenth or for the tenth century through uh, World War II, but in the in the midst of the Cold War, which we saw this, the USSR is the sort of the the institutional state of the of the Cold War in the United States. And I know I'm I'm dating myself here a little bit, but um, I was. Uh, I, I was, I was, you know, like becoming politically aware, uh, 10 years old, 12 years old around the time the Cold War was wrapping up and the Berlin Wall was coming down and the Soviet Union was falling apart. 
And ever since that time, through the 90s and through the early 2000s, there was sort of this belief, especially in the United States, which is what I'm talking about here, that Russia was going to become this democratic state under Boris Yeltsin, and it was going to – the Cold War was just going to kind of evaporate like a, like a bad fog. And we would sort of just move forward, and that really neglected the importance of this, of this kind of history that Chris is describing. And so there's a term that political scientists use, uh, which is, which is revenge. And revanchism is just a fancy way of saying, we'd like things to be back the way they were, thank you very much. And in this case, uh, Vladimir Putin is very much a revanchist. He has, as part of his, the way he speaks publicly, but also the way he, I think he thinks about the world, is that 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union was an incredible tragedy. It was um, an emasculation of Russia, but it was also this um, – it was a real um, a real detriment to the world. And the fact that NATO expanded uh, into places that were traditionally Russian sphere of influence, these bloodlands that Chris has talked about, is a major problem for Putin. And so not only does he not see Ukraine as a separate state, but some of those other types of countries in that area he sees as – um, an area in which NATO should not be involved, the United States should not be aligned, these countries should be um, aligned with Russia. And this is part of his project to reassert uh, uh, Russian power and influence. Great. Um, I have an audience question. Um, what does Putin stand to gain militarily or politically from the invasion? I'll start. Um, <laughs> uh, call us out if there's somebody specifically you want to throw these to. Um, I think that um, his uh, – well, it's hard to answer that now in light of the fact that it has gone so badly for Russia. Um, and let me uh, – l- l- let's be honest about that. The, the way that Russia configured its invasion some eight weeks ago now was with the intention and the belief that they would very, very quickly blitz through the country, um, conquer Kiev, um, and um, occupy major eastern Ukrainian cities. And basically, and this is a term from the Bush administration in the United States, but we would, they would be greeted as liberators. That there would be these, these waves of Ukrainians who would be relieved to get rid of their, their awful government. And it just, it, that was fantastically wrong. So, had he been able to do that, this would have been an enormous gain for uh, for Putin. He would have gotten uh, Ukrainian territory. Um, Ukraine's economy is not as strong as Russia's. It is comparatively weak relative to the rest of Europe and Russia, but it's not nothing. It is uh, economically a pro- um, uh, um it has resources. It has a lot of, uh, of potential for trade and natural resources, those kinds of things. So he would have gotten all of that. And if he could have kept all of the infrastructure intact, he would have benefited. Now, all that's off the table now. It's not clear what he gets except for – and I'm going to make reference to the map now. If you look at uh, the green Ukrainian uh, country on the map, you'll see in the very southern part of of Ukraine, it borders the Black Sea. And that little peninsula sticking out into the Black Sea has, although it's colored green on this map, has actually been under the control of Russia since 2014. In 2014, Russia invaded Crimea, which is what that peninsula is, and seized it. That is militarily strategic because, uh, amongst other things, and on the Crimean Peninsula is the Sevastopol Naval Port. That's Russia's largest uh, freshwater naval port. And there's submarines there and, and battleships. And the problem with that is the only way for Russia to get access to Crimea and the Sevastopol Naval Port on land was that little tiny land bridge on the east side of Ukraine, or the east, sorry, the east side of Crimea into what is what is Russian land. What what Putin has been able to do with this invasion is basically secure a chain of towns and territory from what is nearly Odessa on the Black Sea all the way up to Donetsk. And that is the area of the invasion that has actually been successful. So Russian forces control sort of a land bridge now between what is almost Odessa, what is where Mariupol is. You may have heard about Mariupol in the news. That's where a lot of very intense fighting has taken place, all the way up to Donetsk, which is also under Russian control. If he can continue to hold that, that will be a significant gain for Putin because he will be able to continue to move military forces on land um, from Crimea to Russia back and forth. Could I jump in and ask you a question, Chris? Um, 
What do you think is the, uh, this is totally unfair, uh, but what do you think is the likelihood of him being able to maintain sort of that, um, you know, maintain the Donbass region um, that is mostly controlled and also the region that extends down to the Crimean Peninsula? Do you think um, he's going to be able to maintain that? Um, or do you think Russians, um, excuse me, Ukrainian counterattacks will be able to sort of, um, push, roll back the Russians to some extent. Maybe not all the way to their borders, but um, at some point in the next year or so, have a successful counteroffensive. Yeah, I think it'll be, if anything, now we're all recalibrating from how poorly the Russian military has performed over the last two months. And so initially we thought this this war would be over in 80 hours. And now it seems like the Russians can't do anything right. I think the truth is likely somewhere in between those two things. I do think it will be relatively easy for uh, the Russian military to hold on to uh, the Donbass region, which is the air region right around the Donetsk on the map there, and to hold on to Crimea. They've established themselves there. There's large military presence there, um, and they've controlled those for since 2014. The area in between, I think, will be challenging, and I think that what the – the extent to which uh, Ukrainian forces have held out in Mariupol until this point suggests that there will be a likely ongoing insurgency there if he receives that land bridge as part of a settlement. I was going to say, the settlement seems like the key word. Like yeah. Part of it has to do with how does this war actually end. Right? I'm not sure it's going to be something ended decisively on the battlefield somewhere. It's how will these two sides come together or how will some other actor try to broker some sort of settlement. And it's hard to imagine Vladimir Putin not, ex- not escaping with some kind of territorial gain. Right, if only to consolidate like what they already were claiming in the southeast, and to set up for some kind of future endeavor. Yeah. Right, I agree with that. Okay. Um, I have another audience question. This one might uh, pull Tom in a little bit more. Um, how have people in Russia and Ukraine been impacted by changes in the economy? So that's kind of a crossover, poli sci and not question. You've been there most recently. It's it's not my expertise at all. Um, but I will say this. When I was in Ukraine at the end of March, um, I was surprised that there was fuel that you could purchase. Stores had food in them. Uh, the people that we partner with there who are primarily moving things to eastern Ukraine and into conflict zones to get people relief they need and to get people out are buying as much as they can within Ukraine. And they have not yet mentioned uh, that they're running out of supplies. So I expected to actually see that, and I didn't. So um, that was a few weeks ago. Things change every day. So don't know where things are now. Maybe you guys do. Yeah, I mean, the, it, like you said, it, it's changing uh, sort of constantly. I mean, there's reports of gas stations, you know, being and, and gas lines and railways being bombed. Um, and um, there's also reports um, out of um, especially out of the eastern half of Ukraine, uh, where there's uh, just a great amount of agriculture, um, that a lot of the the agricultural goods there, the land is being taken over, um, and those goods are either having a hard time getting to market or they are being sort of whisked off to Russia, right? So, um, you know, that could affect, of course, Ukraine, um, its ability to feed itself, also its ability to sort of make money for its own economy by getting that grain to market. Um, Ukraine is considered to be the breadbasket of Europe. Um, The Russian economy um, is suffering quite a bit. Um, Estimates are that their economy will contract in 2022 by about 10%. Um, This is um, entirely due to the economic sanctions that um, U.S. um, and all of its many allies have coordinated to um, impose on Russia um, sanctions that are entirely unprecedented in the history of the world. Um, and now, as well, um, with Europe um, basically um, getting ready to sever its its uh, ties with buying Russian petroleum, um, Germany just got on board with that this past week, and that they were a critical uh, critical player um, in that, and and that's further going to hurt um, hurt Russia because that's how they make, they make a lot of their money uh, is through uh, petroleum. So we could we could dive into to that more, but. Um, Russians are starting to feel the squeeze as well. If I can also add that um, there are at least 5 million people internally displaced within Ukraine. Um, so 
what do they do, right? So you've got a lot of, there's going to be an economic hit. And there's a ton, literally tons of relief going in every day into Ukraine, into Ukraine to keep things going. So part of it's being propped up from um, friendly countries helping out uh, as people are displaced into safer parts of the country. The whole country is not under attack. And so a lot of people don't want to leave their country, even if they've had to flee their homes. But for those people to find work where they fled, that's not happening. Um, it's been interesting in the mix. I'll just the, a little human component with that is I, I heard and saw uh, several examples of where. So, so COVID hit Ukraine really hard too, economically and everything else, like, like everybody. So prices were going up and there was a lot of struggle. But when the Russians invaded on the 24th, there were bakeries and restaurants in Ukraine who went to the groups, including a lot of churches that are offering, uh, short-term shelter to people who are being displaced in the country. And those guys went to the, the people sheltering, uh, IDP, internally displaced persons offering uh, free meals, hot meals, and they just started catering them in to feed people. So even when things are so uncertain and troubled, there's an undercurrent of everybody's working together to survive. Wow, that's great. Um, could you speak more on the Ukrainian um, humanitarian side. Um, are Ukrainian refugees treated differently from refugees in other places? Um, and what are the unique problems that they're facing? So, um, yeah, they are being treated differently um, than refugees from other countries. And please take this back when you go tonight. Take this with you. Um, there are a lot of people who are being forced out of their homes and out of their countries by similar forces in countries like Sudan and South Sudan and Somalia and Ethiopia and Myanmar and you name it. There, there's an awful lot of breakdown uh, going on in the world. Um, the Ukrainians have been received by the European Union countries with almost unprecedented open arms and welcome. The, the European Union, uh, including the border countries of Ukraine, so you, you see Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and Romania kind of cradling it on one side. And, and those countries have been some of the least friendly to refugees, uh, in history, in recent history. Um, one of the routes that people take when they're looking for a safe country even out of the Middle East or out of Asia, out of uh, Africa even, is the land route goes through those countries and they try to drop into the EU from them. And I think you remember prior to the war, there was an awful lot of news about the uh, Belarus border with Poland and how Poland wasn't letting non, well, they weren't letting the refugees come across and Belarus probably with some Russian help uh, was putting Afghanis and other refugees into no man's land between the borders, wanting them to surge into Poland. Um, so that they were actually using refugees as a weapon. They weaponized them uh, to try to destabilize Poland and, and frustrate the EU. That was before the current crisis. Um, but the Poles just let them sit there. So there were women, children, and men stuck in really bad conditions for a long time. Uh, when the Ukrainian conflict began, there were also plenty of stories of uh, Ukrainians being welcomed across the borders, but Africans and Asians not welcomed across into Poland and, and some of the other countries. So that has changed, and they opened wide, and I've even experienced and seen it firsthand just how welcoming these countries have become in really in, in a heartbeat. Because most of us had no idea. I don't know if anybody had any idea what was going to happen on the 24th of February. Everybody thought it's pretty far-fetched that what's happening now could ever happen in Europe again. So as the refugees come across, Ukrainians get treated differently, I think, for probably two reasons. Um, one is they're white Europeans. Uh, let's say three reasons. Um, one is they're white Europeans. Um, and the white world tends to treat white people better than they treat other people. I think that's pretty clear. And and I work with refugees in a lot of different places. And um, this reminds me of the Cold War. 
Back in the 80s, uh, when I was in Austria working with refugees, the refugees came out of communist countries, the East Bloc countries that the Soviet Union used as borderlands kind of to protect itself from NATO countries, Poland, a country called Czechoslovakia at the time and stuff. And when those refugees came to Austria, we thought it was a forever time for these people to be in a refugee camp before they were resettled to America, Canada, or Australia. And it, the average time back then was three or four months of waiting before they got here. Three or four months. Today, if you go into a refugee camp, you'll find people who were born into families where the last relative to have seen their homeland is a grandparent. So what's the difference? And as soon as the Cold War ended, suddenly the same people that were getting resettled out of the camps in Europe to America, Canada, and Australia... Um, and some to New Zealand, um, suddenly nobody had room for them anymore. And it was, sorry, Europe has to take care of them now. I think there's a similar dynamic going on now because the refugees in the 80s during the Cold War take the class, but during the Cold War, those refugees from communist countries had political value. Every one of those people we took into America was in the face of the Soviet Union, or Russia today maybe. And in, in the case of the Ukrainian war, it's a similar thing where everybody has political value right now uh, that's coming out of the Ukraine because every one of those is showing how awful Russia is. And, and I am confident that is in play today with what's going on. The, the third thing that's going on, so they're white, they've got political value, and the other thing is proximity. They're, they're neighboring countries. And, um, you know, if Wisconsin had some kind of invasion from Canada or something and they all fled to Minnesota, it's going to happen. Just wait. <laughs> you know, I've heard. I've heard things. No. So, but if they all came here, um, you know, we would, we would give preference to our neighbors. So there's some good reasons to do that. And then there's some other reasons that even um, add further, a further uh, shot of energy into the welcome. Now, with that, I, I'm watching what's going to happen within the six month time frame of this humanitarian crisis of refugees. What, what we've seen in many cases has happened in Europe with the Syrians as well, where they were, by some of the European Union countries like Germany, they were welcomed with open arms. People went to the train stations in Berlin with stuffed animals for the refugee kids coming out of Syria. I don't know if you remember that, but there is a big, wide open welcome. And Germany said everybody who gets here gets, gets asylum. They get safety. They get refuge here. And so everybody wanted to come. And, um, about six months into that, and we've seen this in other cases too, uh, the welcome starts to get a little bit chillier. It cools down uh, because it gets a lot more complicated because now that people are here that don't speak our language, whose kids don't speak the language, who need to go to school, people who've lost everything they've had ever had in their lives and have to completely rebuild and aren't contributors to the social system but are just viewed as takers by more and more people. So then right-wing parties tend to start gaining power in those countries while that happens. And, and I think, I hope not. I hope I'm really wrong. But if things go through cycles, uh, I won't be surprised if the welcome, and I've even heard some voices already, that the welcome could get colder. And then we're going to enter into the next 12 months of the crisis. The same, I'll stop in a second. The same thing, at the same time that's happening, let me totally depress you. Um, that's what I do. Um, in, in the same time that's happening, um, the, the Ukrainians who've come out are almost all women and children. Because the men, 18 to 60, I think 60 or 62, they can't leave Ukraine. They're supposed to be part of the war effort. So only women, children, and husbands who have more than two children can accompany their families out. Everybody else has to be in the war effort. And there are politicians and officials in cities looking for men who might be in hiding who don't want to fight. So that's going on as well. And so some of those guys want to get out because not everybody wants to fight. So... Now, if you remember how, you know, you got the 5 million refugees who have fled into the European Union in, in less than two months. And they're almost all women and children. That's going to tax any economy. It's going to tax any society. And if we can go back before the conflict on top of this, the Ukraine, so I lived in Europe for about 23 years. 
and, and the Ukraine doesn't have the greatest reputation in Western Europe. It tends to have a lot of generalizations about it, um, often relating to uh, criminal activity and cybercrime and things like that. And so a lot of this stuff is going to percolate up as people get tired of welcoming and as they start to be told by some press and some uh, politicians that these people are now becoming a burden and taking what is rightfully the native population's stuff, services. Is that fair? Tom, is that all affected by the length of the war? And I guess what I mean is, like, if this isn't something that now persists for years, what's the likelihood of the people who have left seeking to return, right? Because, right. I mean, you've got family back in Ukraine. I mean, is this viewed by those refugees as a permanent relocation? Are they actually looking to be resettled elsewhere to put down roots? Or are they looking for shelter but seeking to return, hopefully, in a short period? That's a really, really good point. So right now, there's, there's a couple other things going on in the cycle. Right now, probably 80 90% of the Ukrainians who've come out hope to go back this year. Um, that was the same thing with the Syrians who fled to Turkey, who are still in Turkey today. That was the same thing with the Sudanese that went to Kenya back in the day. Same thing with the South Sudanese who've gone into Kenya and Uganda that's going on today. And the same thing that's happened in a lot of other places, even, even Myanmar thought that some of those people thought they'd go back. What, what happens, what we've seen, and I wish I had, like, if anybody's doing a doctorate thing or something like that, let me know. I've got a few ideas for you. But one thing I'd like to find out is, uh, my experience tells me um, that at about the three to five year mark of displacement, which isn't uncommon anymore because most of the wars in the world are protracted, um, at the three to five year mark, the people who have been displaced start to realize there's no home to go back to. It's either been destroyed or somebody else is living in it, or it now harbors only painful memories. Um, I've sat with countless refugees who've shown me pictures of where they grew up, started telling me childhood memories, and then remembered the last time they saw it, it was full of dead bodies, the places that used to have good memories. And people say there's no going back because that place no longer exists because of what's happened there. So the hope is yes. I'm, I'm a little pessimistic on this one. I was going to ask as a, as a follow-up. Um, so, obviously, there are certain parts of Ukraine that are utterly devastated. Um, rebuilding would take a generation or two. Um, there are a number of parts of Ukraine that were only lightly affected or not affected at all. It's a really big country. Um, to what extent is it possible that some of these uh, refugees from Ukraine um, will go back to Ukraine, but perhaps not to their particular hometown or region? Um, because it's their country and there's been a remarkable level of sort of national pride and solidarity, um, which I would wonder if, if you see that sort of level of national pride and solidarity in the other sort of, in the other situations that you referenced. Um, and, and to me, that's a pretty important variable. Um, and I wonder how that could impact. Um, but you know more about this than I do. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, super good point. I, I don't think I've met a more um, patriotic or nationalistic mm -hmm. people um, from they may be Hungarian speaking Ukrainians or Roma speaking Hungarians or Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians or Russian speaking Ukrainians. But there is a deep, deep, deep bond with the land. And that is a factor. It will call people back. So, yeah, maybe that'll be a strong enough draw if that part, those parts of the country remain I think if Kiev remains free, I think if Kiev falls, I think it'll be challenging. Okay. We have uh, one more audience question, and then I want to wrap up. Um, this one's a big one, though. So humanitarian-wise or um, political-wise, um, how is this going to impact the global community? Mm. Yeah, whoever wants to start, please go ahead. Can I just do one big idea that I've been thinking about? And it's probably because the explainer video ended with this. He talked about thinking in 2014 that the arc of history is bending towards peace. 
So tomorrow I'll be in here doing a lecture on 20th century wars for CWC. And then one of the reasons we do that is because we come out of the Enlightenment with this notion of perpetual progress. I'll talk about Immanuel Kant floating the idea of perpetual peace. And then World War I hits. And then World War II hits. And then the Cold War hits. But then, as Chris said, we get to the 1990s and there's a sense of we figured this out and history has ended, right? And, uh, and that's whoops. what's, whoops. But that, that's what's so shocking, right? Is the notion of how can we have a European war, right? In the year 2022. Um, I feel bad because I'm saying the two generation is going to have to grow up with this now. Like you, uh, it's going to be a much longer arc toward peace. I don't think you're going to have that naivete. Like I, I was in college in 1993 is when I started. I took Russian politics classes. Like I just imbibed that. Like, I had enough memory of the Cold War to be really excited that we had figured it out. And I just can't imagine that's going to be part of what your 20s and 30s are going to look like. And so I don't know where that's going to take us exactly. But it is one reason some of my questions here already have been like, how protracted a war do we expect this to be? Even if this particular iteration of it is resolved, how long before we get another one just like this? How long before we see other violations of national sovereignty in other parts of the world? We haven't talked about China yet. Um, it's just, I think it's becoming harder and harder to think that somehow after World War II or the Cold War, we built some system that would institutionalize perpetual peace and would become less and less likely you would see something like a big country invading its smaller neighbor. And um, the naivete is very hard to sustain for me at this point. Great for a model UN event. <laughs> that's good. I. That's not good. That was a good explanation. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible, actually. You, Chris. Yeah. The, I guess the thing I would add on to that is there's a sort of a glass half full glass half empty um, side of, of the response, the international humanitarian international political response. I'm going to focus on the political response. Um, it is, it has been surprising to some commentators, especially in the wake of the COVID pandemic and the fracturing of the global system. Think about, uh, United Kingdom leaving the European Union. Think about the rise of far right parties in places like Hungary Germany, France, other places, um, Poland, um, and the, the, the relative level of unity in Europe in responding to and condemning, uh, Russia has really been pivotal to giving supplementary help and aid to the Ukrainians here. Uh, the biggest news story, in my opinion, out of this week of the, of, of the fight has been basically Europe agreeing finally to completely curtail Russian petroleum imports. Uh, again, the, the video is right about this. Russia has become largely a petrostate. Uh, and they make an enormous amount of money and they fuel uh, particularly Putin's regime with oil. I don't think Putin ever expected uh, the Europeans to be unified enough to essentially cut off uh, Russian oil imports. Now, that said, they're still not going to do it until December of this year. So we've got a, there's still a long time for Putin to continue to export oil and to make to make some kind of a deal. Now, a lot's going to happen between now and then. But the fact they got there is, is, is kind of remarkable. It's also remarkable that the United States, I think, played a strong, not played a strong role in coordinating a response to, uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I don't know what I mean by that. The United States does not import much of anything from Russia. So our decision to economically sanction Russia is functionally meaningless. Um, it's a good symbol, but, uh, what the Europeans are doing in terms of economic sanctions is what really matters. But what the United States is is done, I think, which I think has really been overlooked, is the extent to which we coordinated intelligence. I've never seen this before in a modern conflict. But basically, the United States took a whole lot of what we would normally classify and just literally put it out in the press and said, this is what the Russians are doing. This is where the soldiers are. This is what they look like they're planning to do. And just announced it. And of course, we were also feeding that information to Ukrainian forces as well. But that level of transparency, I think was really pivotal to how long a bunch of countries to come on board under the aegis of the United States and the European Union. It's still happening, though, because even this week or even today, I saw a story that a lot of um, American and European diplomats are putting pressure on their African colleagues, trying to get a number of African countries to also condemn the European or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that really hasn't happened yet. Some of the notable outliers, countries that really haven't taken a stand against Russia, are 
much of the developing world. And that especially includes India, which has been very quiet about this, uh, this entire enterprise. And of course, China is completely sitting on the sidelines and in some ways has not directly supported Russia, uh, but has certainly not made any efforts to curtail this invasion either. I wonder if it'd be worth chatting about China for just a, a, a couple of minutes. Okay. I mean, that's, that's the uh, the next uh, dog to bark or perhaps bite. Um, it, it's interesting that um, the U.S. and NATO response to to the invasion of Ukraine um, initially was purely um, to put economic sanctions on Russia um, out of cons- out of a concern for. Uh, further provoking Putin um, or escalating the conflict, um, and it's only after after Ukraine managed to create its own success did um, did United States and NATO really decide to send more than simply small arms. Um, if Russia had been more successful, um, and it looked like Ukraine would not be able to survive, it's highly doubtful that um, that the West would have stood with Ukraine. Is my view. Um, we sensed Ukraine might win, so we decided to help um, in a more substantial way. Um, and also the economic sanctions that we were able to put on Russia have, on the whole, relatively low cost, um, especially to the United States, um, also to the European Union, although what they're doing with um, petroleum is um, is certainly going to hurt them, right? Yep. Um, but the economic sanctions we were able to impose are sort of relatively co- low cost for us. So thinking about China, our economies are completely intertwined. Um, any sort of sanctions that we place on China or that even the European Union places on China or other countries um, are going to hurt us um, almost as much as they're going to um, hurt China. Um, and it's also not clear how successful Taiwan would be in being able to fend off um, um, a Chinese invasion. And Surely, China has taken note of how the West has responded and noted that if they're going to actually successfully take China, it needs to really be a knockout punch and they can't diddle around um, and and assume a victory. And so I think should they decide to do that, and there's some indications that they might, I would not be surprised if they did by 2026, 2027, um, when Taiwan is actually supposed to get more of its weapon systems online from the United mm-hmm. States. Um I think China will um, will take a different approach, and I and I I have a great deal of skepticism about how effective the Western response is going to be. Um, maybe I'm unduly pessimistic, Chris. I turn to you um, for my my dose of optimism. Um, Chris is our department optimist. Um, I'm more on the skeptical side, so um, perhaps you can uh, you can shake me loose from some of this doom and gloom. Optimistic takes on war. All right. Um, <laughs> I uh, unfortunately, I uh, well here's what I guess here's what I'll, here's my shot at optimism. How's okay. that? Um, comparing Russia and Ukraine to uh, Taiwan and China is, I think, comparing apples to Buicks. It's they're they're quite different scenarios. The only thing that's binding them together is that term, that revanchism term that I used prior, which is to the extent that we think that Xi Jinping believes that Taiwan needs to be part of mainland China under the same kind of governance, like he has done in Hong Kong, uh, like he's done elsewhere. That if, if that's the um, if we think that that model holds, then yes, Taiwan is is very much a, an object of concern. On the other hand, at least when it comes to the United States and Taiwanese military posture, there's a order of magnitude difference in preparation between what Taiwan and the United States have done over time during the Cold War to try to protect Taiwan from a possible Chinese incursion compared to what we had done with the exception of maybe the month preceding the Russian invasion of Ukraine in Ukraine. That just, this, this was sort of a, a, a very quick ramp up response to the Russian invasion. Um, we've been potent, preparing for a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan since the seventies and maybe prior to that. So now that said, here's the, here's the bad news. That was my optimism. So here's the bad news. If China decides beyond all that, <laughs> let's be legends uh, and let's let's take Taiwan 
the chances of it sparking a massive international conflict, which would include the United States, is very high. So it's the stakes become much, much higher over Taiwan than they have been so far under Ukraine. That said, don't forget, and is my last piece of bad news, Russia still has about 6,000 operational nuclear warheads. And if things go very, very badly in Ukraine, we could see the first use of a nuclear weapon since the end of World War II. It may not look like how World War II ended with the United States bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It could be something launched into the atmosphere and then exploded as a show of force, a shot across the bow, if you will, or something else. But I am genuinely concerned about nuclear escalation. That doesn't make me feel better at all. No. <laughs> You're the optimistic one, Chris. I know. <laughs> and, and I'll just pile on that point um, real briefly because I know you're going to I mean, it's... People who study this, um, because I don't, but people who study this say that the more successful that Ukraine is, the higher the risk that Vladimir Putin will resort to using tactical nuclear weapons. Um, There's a few different ways he could do that. Um, One of them is to just try to just destroy areas he's not able to conquer. Another area, uh, another way to do it is simply as sort of a negotiating tool um, and to basically nuclear blackmail, essentially, and also a way to sort of um, force the West to say, like, to, to basically cut off the supply of arms and goods. We will we will drop um, we will use a tactical nuke um, in this city unless you, you know, cut off your supplies. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I'm not an expert, but I wouldn't rule it out. So, And that could completely change change the game on what happens to Ukraine. I think, honestly, that's the only way that the game changes with Ukraine at this point is the use of tactical nuclear weapons, which also makes me think that Putin might, when push comes to shove, decide to to use them. And he's actually been, um, there's actually been some really interesting uh, additional sort of saber rattling references to the use of nuclear weapons, um, both in sort of the internal propaganda in Russia during this past week, um, but also some other statements that they have made externally. So that said, and I'm back on, okay, back on optimism. optimism. (laughs) It's early. We're about eight weeks in. But we have seen a number of of times during these first couple of months where the Russian military could have taken much more barbaric actions with conventional weapons um, and things like cyber attacks, for example. And they haven't done that yet. Now, part of that is because they expected to conquer very quickly and there's no interest in destroying things that you could just seize and, and remain intact. But they have shown some discretion in some of, in, in, in not using some of the more barbaric tools of war to this point. Maybe that suggests some level of, of, of restraint that I think we should hold on to. All right. Well, I kind of do want us to end on something of an optimistic (laughs) note, actually. So um, my last question is, um, when you find yourself overwhelmed by the size of a crisis like this, what helps you? What do you remember? What do you repeat to yourself to um, keep the hopelessness at bay? That's such a great question. What do you do? Um, I think there's there's several things that lend our uh, that strengthen resilience. We actually use this in our work. There's five keys we think, and we see it with refugees. First one is to be in a welcoming, safe, supportive community of people. We need people. We need to talk. We need to be listened to, and we need to listen to each other. So community can get us through an awful lot of hardship and even uh, sadness or the heaviness of things just because we're together. So isolation is not our friend. Next thing is a life-giving worldview. And you could call that faith. Uh, I like to use the word worldview. It communicates better outside of, well, just with anybody. But the Bible, I, I like to go to the Gospel of Hagar. Uh, if you've read the book, of Genesis, you bumped into Hagar. She gets kind of a little bit of bad press in the New Testament. But Hagar, Hagar was a refugee. She was forced out of the family and the place she was. She was sent out into the desert as a single pregnant mother. It's the most vulnerable refugee you can find. 
And there's a lot of single pregnant mothers in the world, and they are, even the refugee churches make sure they take care of those people because they know how vulnerable they are. So she's out in the wilderness, and while she's out there, God calls her name. And she finds out that God not only spoke to her and just said her name, Hagar, and asked her, where are you going? <laughs> and um, which is a very kind thing of God to ask. Um, where are you going? What's, what's up? But then she finds out that God sees her. She names the place where that happened, Belahai Bella Roy, or uh, she names God. I, to my knowledge, she's the only person in the Bible that names God, and she's an Egyptian slave woman. She names God Leroy, which means God sees. And then God tells her, name the son that you're going to have Ishmael, which means God hears. And the encounter with God in the wilderness gave her enough hope to bear the call of God on her life to go back where she had been exiled from. God said, turn around and go back. So she went back to those people. But she went back knowing God sees, God hears, and God cares for her. She got displaced again a few years later. What is it, 14 years later? She's displaced again, this time a single mom with a 14-year-old son. And um, but, but every time she called out her son's name, she remembered God hears. That was quite a marker. And I think for us, that's the gospel. That's the good news. God sees, God hears, God cares. Jesus is the ultimate expression of that, the ultimate demonstration of the fact that God sees, God hears, God cares, and God speaks to us. And so we cling to that. And along with that, Jesus also demonstrates to us that evil and suffering and death do not get the last word. And if, if Christians are any people of hope at all, that's what it's grounded in is evil, suffering, and death do not get the last word. And so we are empowered to move into dark places because that's what we were created in Christ for. We were created to go to the places where there is no hope and make that declaration based on the historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is really where hope is. And a lot of people don't know those things. God sees, God hears, God cares. Evil, death, and suffering don't get the last word. And so we can go into these spaces. We should actually, not every single person, probably, but the church as a whole needs to be moving into places where there is despair because we carry that hope that is not based on circumstance. We can transcend anything. I tell you that not because my life has been so hard, but I've been among people. I've dwelt with people for the last 40 plus years who have been in those Hagar places. And I've seen refugees in horrible places on the planet who've been there for decades and I've seen them declare those things and I've seen them be people of joy when they have no human reason for it so I know this stands up and I, I get inspiration from them so I think that's key so safe supportive community life-giving worldview and then I'll just say um, emotional well-being so we got to keep track of how are we doing and if we're, if we're starting to go under a dark cloud, we gotta tell a friend. We need community again. We gotta be able to say, I'm losing it right now. I am moving towards despair. That is the scariest place a human heart can go. And so we have to be open about it. Give each other permission and give our friends permission to say that kind of stuff to us. Because we got to stand together. And if this stuff gets too heavy, sometimes turn off the news. Stop watching the internet channels that are shooting stuff at us all the time, over and over again, telling us why we should lose heart. Sometimes it's not denial, it's a break. Never deny what's happening and the horrors and hell of it. But you do, you've got the freedom to take a break. And sometimes the nonstop news feed can really wear us out. And when I say a break, take a break. I have a motorcycle and I ride it in the summer. And it's clears my mind it just just what do you do have something that does that for you and I think the other thing is to never forget that the people who have been forced to flee their homes they're more than people in need that they get represented as these poor people who just need everybody's help all the time they are not just people in need they are resilient themselves they are strong. They carry great gifts with them. They're part of the solution to their problem, and they might even be a gift to the new societies they find themselves taking a part in. 
those things give me hope. And I can tell you, it's not like fantasy because I've been, I've been living with these people all these years. So we don't have to lose hope. In fact, our hope is strong enough where we could actually dare move toward the darkness because it needs to be lit up with hope. I don't know if we should try to say anything more. I'm good. <laughs> but I will. Um, no, and maybe to pick up on that, what I found myself thinking about a lot, um, it's weird to say it's fun to teach World War II because <laughs> 60 to 80 million people died in World War II. But um, there are causes that are dehumanizing, and there also are causes that are ennobling. And struggles reveal the very worst of humanity but they also do reveal the best and i thought the same thing watching some of the refugees like i my instant reaction is i i I don't know what to do when the power goes out for six hours and i'm like i don't know how to cope with that and there are people who some pride they they improvise purpose and meaning and they sustain family and, and then they come to new countries and make new businesses and get phds and become pastors and like it is remark by it and i think it's by god's grace but i think it also says something about how humans are made and that gives me some hope the other thing gives me hope is this by american attention span standards has been gone for a long time right think about how many things have come and gone under covid that we paid a lot of attention to and then two weeks later they were gone too much like tiger kings i was thinking tiger king i'm still playing wordle but i don't know if anyone else is i mean like i mean like in the instant Impact, like everyone for a couple of weeks was talking about this. Students were showing me TikTok things from Ukrainian soldiers. And I kind of wondered, is anyone going to show up tonight? You know, two plus months in, I was going to have advice for how to keep paying attention. And then we actually had students in the midst of other things at the end of a very long semester where we're all exhausted, come out just because they wanted to ask questions and hear us talk. Um, I, so as I have a slightly less naive, hopeful view of peace, uh, like this is what's exciting, right? Cause it's not us who are going to figure out the problems that we've all named so adroitly tonight. It's instead you all will be figuring out most of those problems. And that does give me some hope. I want to add one tiny thing, which is if you find yourself stuck in the negative news cycle that Tom talked about, you can't quite pull yourself away from the doom scroll. Um, Take a, in addition to taking a break from it, find something to do and, um, find something to do, not just absorb information. We're, we're college, you're college students. You're very good at absorbing information. Find something to do. And, and it can be very small. Here's, here's my example. Um, my neighbors across the street are Ukrainian immigrants. Um, and when this is the first conflict that my kids are sort of aware of, my daughter's 10. Um, and when this first happened, my daughter wanted to bring them cookies. And initially I was kind of curmudgeonly about it. I'm like, they don't need cookies. They need guns. Um, but, um, but your neighbors across the street didn't didn't say that to my daughter. Um, but I, but. The cookies weren't about my neighbors. Like the cookies were about my daughter. She, in her mind, was like, "This is how I make sense of how to do something for people who are suffering." Um, and so, find find your cookies, right? Find that thing to do um, in your sphere that is accomplishing something, as opposed to just absorbing information. Play the wordle. <laughs> you should play wordle. Actually, it's great. I'm sorry. I mean, it's- Wordle's great, but I just get stressed after a while. So, <laughs> Wordle is not my cookie. Um, but um, but I was never good at Scrabble, so that's that's probably why. But um, all of that is super helpful. I very briefly sort of circle back to to something you said, uh, Tom. I forgot what psalm it is, but there's a psalm that in which the psalmist says, "Be still and know that I am God," and in that psalm, the psalmist talks about how God is going to make wars cease to the ends of the earth. He's going to break the bow and burn the chariot with fire. He's going to break the war plane. He's going to destroy the nuclear weapons. That's what God is going to do at the end of history. No matter how many nukes fly between now and then or don't fly, that's how history ends. We know how the story ends. We know what God is going to do. And so we are supposed to be still and know that he's God and that he is Lord. And that's where ultimately our hope.
mobilize. And that's what I have to go back to. In addition to, you know, the, the motorcycle riding and the cookies and all that. And getting out of the news cycle, I do that over the summers. I, you know, I just sort of detoxify and sort of sort of desaturate. Um, but at the end of the day, the thing that, that ultimately gives me hope, not just helps me to cope, but which gives me hope is to reflect on, on who God is and what he's doing and what he has promised to do. Can I, can I quickly pick up on the cookies? <laughs> so, so I was in the basement of a church in Slovakia, neighbor to Ukraine, and this church has ripped out its pews, as it should have, and thrown them all in the front of the church, and it was just full of mattresses. And then they f- turned every of their all their other rooms, classrooms, and everything else they had in this church. Everything's just covered with mattresses. It's all for short-term accommodation of Ukrainian refugees that are flowing through this town that's near the border. When they feed the refugees every day two hot meals. And I saw the cook. I was down in the kitchen, saw her cooking away. I think her name was Annie or something like that. And um, one of the things she makes is cookies. And the cookies she makes, she takes an extra minute with each one, and she pops two eyes and a smile into each cookie. Now, we might say... Who cares? What good is that cookie going to do? But I saw the cookies on the table, and I saw a family of Ukrainians come in with some young children, and they went right to the cookie dish, and they saw the cookies with smiles on their faces and popped those puppies into their mouths. And and for a moment, they were smiling. And and I think those cookies are on par with a cup of water offered to a thirsty person, as Jesus said. I was thirsty. You gave me a cup of water. Little tiny things matter more than we think. We think we have to solve the whole problem when all we have to do is make a cookie and put a smiley face on it because those things matter. So good on your kid. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Thank you to our panelists for being here.